Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the book of the Revelation, chapter 19 and verse 11. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. And we'll be reading up through chapter 20 and verse 10. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy word, beginning in Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while." And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or His image, and had not received His mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. As we come toward the end of our sermon series on the teaching of Scripture concerning the advance of Christ's kingdom throughout the world, we find ourselves coming down to the end of our consideration of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And uh, I have too much experience of mismanaging my time and not anticipating how many sermons will come out of a particular uh, set of sermon notes, but we are coming down to the end, either tonight or next time. And it's very crucial for us to understand the optimistic outlook of this book of Revelation. So much of it, in the early chapters, on through the middle portion, uh, is very negative. You could even say realistic in describing the advance of Satan's deceptive agenda, as we've seen in previous sermons, throughout this new covenant period, where he's deceiving the nations through the beast, the false prophet. Uh, His deception is so rank and so foul that you see it in chapter 9 where he's got the key to the bottomless pit. He's standing at the door of hell and he's unleashing smoke and deceptive uh, demonic hordes of all kinds. And it's in some sense discouraging if we're not careful as we see him deceiving the nations chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. And yet we find as we get toward the end of this book that it's clear that the days of that deception are numbered. That he's not going to be deceiving the nations as we see all around us today forever. But rather, uh, he's going to, as we saw in chapter 19, verse 11 and following, uh, he's going to ride forth on a white horse with the sword out of his mouth and defeat his enemies by the Word of God. Through the Gospel symbolized by the robe dipped in blood. And he's going to, verse 15, uh, send that sharp sword out of his mouth, even the Word of God, to strike the nations. And he will rule them. The word rule, as we've said many times before, is the word shepherd. The word shepherd. The same nations that he strikes, he then shepherds. This is not the final judgment. Uh, The people that Christ strikes at the final judgment will not be struck with the sword of His mouth, the Word of God. 
they'll be struck with the sword of His wrath and judgment and sent to hell forever where He won't be shepherding them, but rather, as Psalm 49 says, death shall be their shepherd. Right? So this is in time and history through the Gospel. Jesus Christ on His white horse strikes the nations, defeats them, brings them under His feet, and shepherds them with a rod of iron and brings utter wrath and fierceness of God's wrath upon His enemies even as He establishes His gracious rule as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's not His heavenly rule. There won't be kings and lords in heaven. Uh, But there are kings and lords and presidents and senators and Supreme Court justices and prime ministers. Right? Sometimes we get this sort of pious language. King of kings and Lord of lords. What What does that actually mean? It's a technical term that was used of Nebuchadnezzar and various other world emperors for the authority that they had and the influence over all the the chains of uh, government beneath them. The chain of command will be in the hands of Jesus Christ and He will shepherd the nations as a a sheep, uh, as a flock of sheep being discipled by His Word. And you can see that... uh, as you move along into chapter 20, and people debate chapter 20 and whether, you know, what exactly is the thousand years, but one thing is for certain that this thousand year period that's represented includes such a vast victory for the kingdom of Christ that Satan is, as it were, not just chained up and restrained. You see, oftentimes people say, well, Satan is is restrained, he, he's, he's bound. Uh, well, he's bound, but where's he bound? That's the question. right? He's not bound uh, going around on earth with a ball and chain that sort of restricts him. He's bound in hell. He's bound in the bottomless pit. Uh, he's bound and imprisoned in the bottomless pit. Now, whether that's literal or figurative, recognize if you say it's figurative, you've got some splaining to do with your doctrine of hell because there are instances of people being cast into hell throughout this book. Hell is not a state of mind. It's a place. It's a place. It's a literal, physical place. It's a spatially locatable place for a spirit such as Satan. But even if you take it figuratively, What it's saying is that the condition of the earth at that juncture during the thousand years, again, whether you see that at the beginning of the period or later on in the period, we're not addressing that. But at that particular juncture in this thousand year period, it will be, when you look at the nations of the earth, it will be as if Satan and his influence is shackled up in hell and you just don't see it. You just don't see the influence. In, anywhere, uh, in any way comparable to what was taking place throughout the previous chapters with the beast, the false prophet, the, the rise of Western apostasy and the Roman Catholic Church and all these things. Those things will be a thing of the past. And so you can see a great and, and mighty advance before the end of the New Testament period. We know that at the end of that period, that great gospel advance, there will be an apostasy Uh, The God of Abraham will have blessed all nations in Christ and caused the fulfillment of that prophecy that Abraham's descendants will be as the sand on the seashore. And John tells us that there will be a great apostasy 
among the sand of that seashore. Verse 8 of chapter 20. And among those nations that had been discipled, now they will turn away from the Lord, as Jesus says, similar to the days of Noah. In Matthew 24, as in the days of Noah, there will be great apostasy. The sons of God will merge with the daughters of men, as it were, and there will be a repudiation of that great undeceiving of the nations and conquest of Christ. And so the the sand on the seashore, as it were, is turned against the Lord. And they're gathered together by Satan who re-deceives them and gathers them and then they're defeated with fire from heaven at the second coming. Uh, But there's great optimism in all these things. Whatever view you take of the millennium, there's great optimism here. Now in the book of Revelation, we see a sevenfold timeline of New Testament history. Uh, first, you have the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3, where John the Apostle is the messenger of the Lord Jesus and writes these letters from Christ under inspiration of the Spirit. The Spirit speaks to the churches, these literal seven churches in Asia Minor, and of course, the Spirit is still speaking to the churches through these letters, but they're addressed to these first century churches in the 90s AD, and so they represent John's own day. Second on the timeline, we have the seven seals. The seven seals of that precious document, that scroll that John is weeping and praying and desiring that someone would open, and of course the Lamb of God, Christ Himself, has authority to open those seals of God's plan. And you see that in chapter 6. Then you have the seven trumpets in chapters 8 and 9. Trumpets blown by various angels in warning of God's people. We'll, We'll look at those warnings. Fourthly, you have the seven bowls, or as the King James translates, vials. These are bowls of judgment that are poured out upon the enemies of God. And that occurs in chapter 16. Fifthly, you have the period of the thousand years uh, in which Satan is chained and then locked up in the bottomless pit and the nations are undeceived. Uh, Again, people can debate when that millennial period started, uh, but within the context of that period, these great advances will happen. Satan's influence will be greatly diminished, and the nations will be undeceived. And then sixthly, there's the period after the thousand years. There's a misnomer that goes around that says that the millennial period begins with, let's say, Christ's ascension and ends at His second coming. Uh, That's clearly not the case because verse 7 of chapter 20 says, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Uh, So, I don't think there's any of us that would say, even if we say the millennium is present now, or if we say that it's yet to come, I don't think any of us would say the millennium's over, right? Maybe some would. I've I've not heard, I've not seen any books uh, promoting that in recent years. Uh, So the fact is, as we said, that there's a period, no matter what your view, there's a significant period that's yet to come. It's short and brief in relation to the thousand years, But it is a significant period, however long it is. It's after the thousand years. So Christ will return after that future period. So we don't expect Him to return before the end of this worship service. I hope He does, but that's not the teaching of Scripture. 
because there's this future period when Satan will be released, the nations who are now deceived, having then been undeceived for a sizable period of time, will then be redeceived, and as I said, it'll be like the days of Noah just before the flood. And then seventhly, you have the final judgment. Fire from heaven, Christ returns, the final judgment, heaven and hell, and we see that in Revelation 20, verse 11, through the end of the book. Now, uh, we've seen the optimistic outlook, we've seen the major components of this timeline, and of course, just like in the days of Noah, the people of God would have read that prophecy, or excuse me, I keep saying the day of, days of Noah, uh, I meant to say the days of Daniel. In the days of Daniel, the people of God would have read those prophecies about the head of gold, Babylon, and the shoulders of Medo-Persia, and uh, the, the stomach or the, the, the midsection, the area that is Greece or Alexander the Great, and then the legs and feet and toes of Rome. And they would have been asking themselves, where are we on that timeline? And that would have been a legitimate question, not a speculative question. God doesn't give us timelines and then expect that we'll be totally disinterested and more concerned about other things. We should have a desire to know where we are, roughly speaking, on this timeline of events. Are we in the period that chapter 9 describes where Satan is holding the keys to the bottomless pit and he's opening the doors of hell and letting deceptive, demonic influence run wild in the world? Or are we in the period where Christ is holding the keys and Satan is locked up inside the bottomless pit? These are two incompatible figures. Even if you take them figuratively, right? If we take them literally, they're obviously incompatible. But if you take them figuratively, you've got to engage in a lot of gymnastics to say that chapter 9 and chapter 20 are happening at the same time. Uh, some have tried, and uh, I gave a theological lecture at a, at a uh, conference last year, and that's on YouTube. I dealt with this question of are we in the millennium to a greater extent. That may, if you can look that up if you'd like. We're not going to go into great detail, but uh, it, it's very difficult to justify. I would say impossible to justify the conclusion that chapter 9, Satan unleashing hell's fury and holding the keys is happening simultaneous to Satan being locked up and wishing he had the key to get out. So it's, it's fair to say that we need to look for our place on the timeline in the period between John's day and uh, the Re Revelation chapter 20 with Satan being bound up. We need to look for our place on the timeline among the seals, the trumpets, and or the bowls. Again, Chapter 20, chapter 19 and 20 introduce a time when the beast and the false prophet had been defeated and destroyed. And we identified the beast and the false prophet with the various aspects of the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church. We did that last time. We won't rehash the arguments for that, but I believe they are conclusive. And by the time you get to chapter 19 and 20, again, you see the destruction of these enemies. Well, that hasn't happened yet. So we haven't reached the end of Revelation 19 yet because the beast and the false prophet are still running amok in the world today. So where are we? Well, we're not in the seven letters and we're not at the end of chapter 19 and into chapter 20. So we have to be somewhere in between the seals, the trumpets, 
or the bowls. And so let's consider these particular aspects of the timeline. Now before we do that, let me offer five key interpretive principles. Five key interpretive principles because this is uh, perhaps the most difficult portion of the Word of God to interpret. And so there's some things we want to keep in mind. First, when you look at the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, there are seven of each. Consider each phase in its totality. It's very important not to get lost in the details. The red horse, the black horse, the pale horse, okay, the fourth trumpet, the fifth trumpet. Be careful that you don't get lost in the details. Consider each phase in its totality. And so you want to look at the seven seals uh, in their totality. You want to look at the seven trumpets in their totality. And you want to look at the seven bowls in their totality. In other words, what's the main theme of each of these groups of sevens, each of these phases in the timeline? What's the main theme? Secondly, pay attention to the surrounding visions. Pay attention to the surrounding visions. So remember, we said the seven seals are in chapter 6. Seven trumpets don't show up till uh, chapters 8 and 9. That means chapter 7 provides some preceding material, preceding visions that give us insight into the seven trumpets. And then after that, you find that the seven trumpets go up through chapter 9, but the seven bowls don't show up till chapter 16. So there are intervening visions to, to shed light on the timeline that's contained in the trumpets, which is preceding, and in the bowls, which is just on the horizon. So look at the seals, trumpets, and bowls as the skeleton, and it's fleshed out in the visions, which then shed light and give greater insight into the main theme of each of these phases, which I think we'll find very helpful. And then also, thirdly, observe the consistent pattern that exists in the seals, trumpets, and bowls. If you're interpreting the seven letters of Christ, you'll see a pattern in the, which he, in the way which he addresses each of these churches in Asia Minor. He follows a certain format. Well, we can observe a consistent pattern in these three phases as well. You'll find that in the seals, trumpets, and bowls, that numbers 1 through 4 tend to be more general and figurative and more difficult to understand. If you look at the first four seals, the first four trumpets, the first four bowls, you find lots of figurative imagery. It seems more general. It's difficult to discern anything distinguishing to latch on to. And it, it's just more figurative and more general. In Numbers 5 and 6, it tends to get more specific and literal. Something to sink your teeth into. Something to latch on to. It's more clear. It's more definitive. You, you begin to say, ah, I see what's going on in the first four because the 5 and 6 give me greater detail and it makes more sense. And then the seventh tends to be a segue into the next phase. And so within the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. They're included in the seventh seal. And the seventh trumpet anticipates the outcome of the seven bowls, which indicates that really the seven bowls are within the context of that seventh trumpet. So it's like one of these, uh, 
Russian dolls that just reduces to the next one and the next one. Uh, the seventh seal contains the seventh trumpet, and the seventh trumpet really contains uh, what is yet to come as well uh, in the bowls and, and so on. So you have a segue in number seven. So understand, the first four are general and figurative. Five and six tend to give more light, more specific, more literal. And number seven is a segue to the next phase. Fourthly, look for interpretive clues. Look for interpretive clues. Uh, If you look carefully, the Holy Spirit has given us interpretive clues that... um, you know, if you're playing Sudoku or one of these types of games, you, you get a certain, uh, a certain thing deciphered or decoded and all everything else makes more sense. So let me give you a couple examples. Revelation 7, 1 through 3. These are the pre- preceding visions that come before uh, the seven trumpets. Comes before the seven trumpets and seven trumpets are going to deal with all kinds of judgments on you know a third of the earth, a third of the landscape, a third of the sea, a third of the rivers, and a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and and you're in the first four trumpets you're left asking yourself what what is going on here, um, but look at the preceding material here, chapter seven one through three, he says after these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. So the angels are holding back God's judgment, which is pictured by wind, and the object of the judgment is uh, the earth, the sea, and the vegetation. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So you've got the, the earth, the landscape, the sea. This is the object of the judgment. Again, the angels are withholding that, but they're soon going to be authorized to bring judgment against those things. Notice, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. So notice that the figure of speech is the earth and the landscape. But there's an interpretive key here. Don't harm the landscape until we've sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And what is sealed here? A remnant from God's people. Figuratively speaking, 12,000 from each tribe. Uh, Israel would have had far more than that. And of course, that's the imagery. It's a remnant. A remnant of God's people is being sealed and prepared for a great time of tribulation. And the the judgment that's coming is presented as being against these natural forces, the earth, the sea. But notice, the remnant of that landscape, earth, sea, the remnant is God's believing people. The sealed servants of God. In other words, the servants of God are a subset of the object of that judgment. Now, if you do the math, if the, ser- the faithful servants of God are a subset of the broader category, and the broader category is figuratively described as the earth and the sea, then what are we to think of the earth and the sea? We're to interpret the earth and the sea as picturing more broadly the church of God of which the remnant is but a subset. And this is uh, more clear in Revelation 9 verse 4. Notice similar language. 
They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. See that again? It's giving you both sides of of the algebra equation if you follow it. right? It's saying in chapter 7, the godly servants of, of the Lord, the faithful remnant, is a remnant of the broader group, which is figuratively speaking, the earth and the sea. And then again in chapter 9, verse 4, he says, don't harm the grass or any green thing. In other words, don't harm the vegetation of the earth, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So, ergo, those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads are one part of the landscape, and those who do have the seal of God are the other part. And so, we're, we're meant to understand these judgments on the landscape as having respect to the church of God, which is filled with those who don't have the mark of God, and yet there's a remnant who are sealed. And, and again, I would just encourage you to write that down and read over those things and think about them. We don't have time to dwell on it, but it's clear that the landscape and the remnant are, are meant to interpret each other in these passages. So look for interpretive clues to decipher the imagery as we would in any other part of apocalyptic biblical literature. Fifthly, consult good commentaries. And by good commentaries, I mean, uh, in this sense, commentaries that understand that this book is prophetic, that it deals with predictive prophecy of historical events that are to come to pass between John's day and the second coming of Christ. That's what John says the book is all about in the first several verses in the first chapter. Things that shall come to pass. And so we need to find commentaries such as James Durham, Wilhelmus Abrockel, Matthew Poole, E.B. Elliot, and others who take that opening portion of the book and they understand it properly, and then they give us a more detailed uh, set of resources to interpret the book. So those are five key interpretive principles. Consider each phase in its totality. Don't get lost in the weeds or in the details. Second, pay attention to the surrounding visions to shed light. Third, observe the consistent pattern. The first four uh, seals, trumpets, or bowls deal with general figurative imagery. Five and six get more specific. And number seven is a segue to the next. Fourthly, look for interpretive clues. And fifthly, consult good commentaries. Hopefully we'll do at least four of those five this evening in the remainder of our message. We don't have time to read a bunch of commentaries. But let's, let's dive in to the seven seals in chapter 6. And we're not going to be going through at at such a slow pace that you're going to necessarily have time to follow every single thing and look at the verse. It's just not the nature of what we're doing. It's more of an overview. But you you can turn to Revelation 6. Hopefully you have some paragraph headings that will help guide you as as we fly over it. Now, the seven seals represent this scroll that the Lamb has opened in the previous chapters And it's all inclusive of God's historical plan throughout the New Testament period. It's all inclusive. As I said, the seventh seal includes the trumpets, and the seventh trumpet seems to include the seven bowls and beyond. So, it's really this scroll that includes the whole plan of God for New Testament history. But in this, uh, in seals one through six, if we're looking at it that way, 
in these, uh, these first six seals, we see a general uh, theme of the expansion of the church, the affliction of the church, and the vindication of the church. So these are the main themes, the main components that you see in these first six seals. We'll just call them the seven seals. And this appears, if we look at it closely and carefully, and we're mindful of John's own description of what, how we should understand the book as predictive events between uh, his own day and the second coming of Christ, then this period of time seems to align most closely with the period between John's own day and the wounding of the beast with the conversion of Constantine, that spiritual wounding of Roman paganism and the Roman Empire, which eventually led to, in some sense, to its fall a century later. So this is the early centuries of the church, but let's be careful here. Let's take a look. Uh, First at the preceding visions that help to shine light upon these seven seals. You see these in chapters 4 and 5. You see God on the throne, governing providence and governing history. And you see the Lamb in chapter 5 as the only one, the mediator between God and man, our mediatorial prophet, who is alone qualified and authorized to open up this scroll. Now for that reason, we can say that these preceding visions are really meant to precede the whole timeline, not just the seals. So it's not as if those visions are unique to this period of the seven seals. Rather, they're taking into account that the seals are all-inclusive and we ought to understand God as governing the whole process and the Lamb as having revealed it by way of these seals, trumpets, and bowls. So next we consider the first four seals to get some more specific information. You see this in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And we begin with these horses. The white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse. Now this comes from Zechariah. We don't have time to explore that. That's where the imagery comes from. But essentially, the first horse is not difficult to identify. It's Christ on the white horse uh, with the bow in his hand, and the king's arrows are sharp in the hearts of his enemies. Psalm 45. This is Christ in the early church expanding his kingdom in, in a marvelous and remarkable way. Do we realize that in the days of the Apostle Paul, the church spread from 120 people at the day of Pentecost. Certainly there were other disciples here and there. I don't want to suggest that it was only 120, but in one sense, 120. And it expanded across the world to, by John's day even, you have churches throughout these seven major cities in Asia Minor. And the Gospel's going to Europe. And the Gospel's going to Africa. And the Gospel is expanding at a pace that's far more rapid than anything we've really seen even since then. Uh, Certainly we've had some modern missionary movements that that have been impressive and we're thankful for those, but I don't think thus far in history we've seen anything comparable to the early days of the church up through John's day and continuing on until the Gospel brought even the emperor to his knees in profession of the Christian faith, Constantine himself in the 300s. So this is unique. Christ is, of course, always on the white horse if you want to think of it generally. Uh, But there's something unique here about Christ at the beginning of the church's existence, the New Testament church, 
when He goes forth conquering and to conquer. And by the way, that should be significant as a major placeholder because we're anticipating if everything we've said about these prophecies throughout Scripture is true, or at least enough of it's true, okay, then we're expecting an unprecedented expansion of Christ's kingdom toward the end of this new covenant period, or at least further on in the new covenant period. We're expecting that. We're hoping for that. We're hoping that that day is coming very, very soon. And isn't it interesting that the book of Revelation tells us that yes, at the beginning, Christ in a previously unprecedented way advances the gospel to almost every tribe and tongue and nation in some sense in the first century. And then we come to chapter 19 and we're told that at that point, a day that we long for, He'll be back on the white horse in in an unprecedented way, advancing His kingdom. So there are these two bookends, really, to the book of Revelation. You have this first white horse offensive in the early church, and we're waiting for the second white horse offensive. That second unprecedented expansion of the gospel throughout the world. But in any event, the first horse is easy to identify because Christ is seated upon it. But next you have several horses that represent uh, not, uh, well, they represent death. Some of them specifically, but generally speaking, you see affliction and death in each of these horses. Um, We're not going to go through each one, but when you look at the red horse, the black horse, the pale horse, they're all describing various forms of death, hunger, famine, war, uh, being devoured by wild beasts. It's describing affliction. So, So it's saying that there's a period where the church expands in a massive way, but then comes a period of great suffering and affliction. And you say, well, how do we know the affliction that these horses represent is speaking of the affliction of the church? Well, again, remember what I said. The first four seals are more general. We look for the insight in seals five and six. And if you go to seal number, uh, uh, if you go to seal number five, you'll see that verses nine through eleven of chapter six represents the souls under the altar. That what's being described in the previous four, the previous three seals, with all of this death and misery, even people being devoured by beasts. What does that remind us of? Persecution of early Christians in the Roman Colosseum. This seal number five is meant to indicate that the affliction and misery and death represented by these previous horses is to be understood in the context of Christian persecution. The church goes global. The church experiences persecution within the Roman Empire. Vicious persecution. And there are souls under the altar in heaven crying out for justice. And then you come to uh, the, the sixth seal. The sixth seal in which there is an earthquake. There are three earthquakes in the book of Revelation and in each case they seem to indicate the fall of an empire. The first one is here uh, and the other two are in reference to Babylon. In chapter 11, after the two witnesses, we see a tenth of the city of Babylon falling in in an earthquake. And then at the end of chapter 16, we find God remembering the wicked deeds of Babylon. He remembers their sin and He brings their final judgment through another great earthquake. So there are three. This is the first. And in this case, it represents 
the, the great judgment upon the Roman persecution against Christians. Seal number six is this earthquake. Uh, you can see with the conversion of Constantine, the legalization and adoption of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, eventually leading to God's judgment upon them with the fall of Rome in the 400s. Uh, but notice at the end of chapter 6, the language here. I look, verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. All this language from the Old Testament in relation to the fall of great empires, if you look up the, the cross-references, the proof text. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, it doesn't say Jesus returns there. You can read it from beginning to end. It says that people are filled with fear of His wrath, and they're afraid of His wrath, and they recognize His wrath, and they want to flee and hide from His wrath, and they sense that His wrath has come upon them and that they're not able to stand. But it never says He returns. It just says they're anticipating And that there is a great day of wrath that brings down the empire. Uh, It wouldn't make any sense for for Christ to return in chapter 6. We haven't even gotten to to the rise of the beast and the false prophet and so on and so forth. So here you have the sixth seal, the fall of paganism through the conversion of Constantine and the anticipation of wrath that eventually came when Rome fell a century later. Now, the seventh trumpet brings the trumpets. Sorry, the seventh seal brings the trumpets. Now again, an indication that the sixth seal is not the final judgment is the fact that there's a seventh seal, right? If the sixth seal was the final judgment, what would be the seventh seal? In this case, the seventh seal is the trumpets, and so it opens up a whole new timeline of of events, the seven trumpets, which we find in chapters 8 and 9. So we move on from the early period of Christian expansion, affliction, and vindication. And now we enter Satan's plan B. Remember we said when the dragon failed through the Roman pagan persecution that in chapter 12 and 13 that the dragon turned to a different strategy. Uh, He used an internal foe. He employed a beast with horns like a lamb who spoke like a dragon. Apostasy. And this apostasy, we could look at various verses. Again, we're just doing an overview, but it lasts three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. Well, as in Daniel chapter 9, the days indicate years. If we take it at that level, the 1260 years from Constantine 313 to about the establishment of the Reformation in 1573, when you have uh, really a significant defeat of the Roman Catholic Church, a tenth of the city of of Babylon falls, as it were, and uh, Protestantism and Protestant nation-states 
are established. Uh, But that period from Constantine up until the Reformation is a period of great darkness and apostasy. And you can see it in the preceding visions. Chapter 7. In chapter 7, what do we have? The sealing of a remnant. Why is God sealing the remnant? So that they'll survive the massive period of apostasy that is coming. And that remnant, we're told, in that other preceding vision, we're told that the remnant not only endures the great tribulation of that apostasy and persecution, but multiplies greatly from a 12,000 per tribe remnant to an innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So God is going to use that massive period of apostasy to ultimately bring forth great gospel fruit among the nations. Now let's look at those trumpets. Trumpet one, trumpets 1 through 4. Uh, you see a theme. A third of the earth, a third of the trees, a third of the grass, a third of the landscape, a third of the seas, a third of the heavens, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. Okay, A third of all these things that we saw in our interpretive key from chapter 7 and chapter 9 represents the church as a whole of which God's sealed remnant is but a subset. Uh, Here you have a third of all these things representing the church are uh, wiped out. Now, where have we heard that before? A third. Well, if you go to Revelation 12 verse 4, you can see that this is imagery of satanic apostasy. Remember Satan, the red dragon, whose tail takes with him a third of the stars of heaven. In other words, it's representing, uh, well, we could debate what it's representing, but at face value, it's satanic apostasy, either of the demons or something in relation to what we're looking at here. But his tail takes a third away, a third of the stars. Let's say a third of the angels are fallen. Something along those lines. Well, uh, that's the language of trumpets 1 through 4. A third of that entity of which the remnant is a subset is taken through apostasy, satanic apostasy. And uh, we can see this becoming more clear, again, following our interpretive key. Trumpet number 5. What does it describe? Uh, Trumpet number 5. Chapter 9, once again, there's the king of the bottomless pit, Satan himself with the key, opening it up, causing smoke and deception and demonic uh, forces to be unleashed throughout the earth. So Satan, the king of the bottomless pit, is masterminding and facilitating this deception and this apostasy. It describes the rise of the papacy, the beast, the false prophet from around the, especially the 600s on, when all of this satanic darkness and heresy brought in literally the dark ages in Christian theology. Trumpet number six then builds on this. So there's the apostasy in the West under the Pope. But notice number six, the Euphrates, what's happening back east. There are four angels holding back judgment at the Euphrates River, and uh, it's in the Middle East. And what do we have? An army of 200 million warriors unleashed that kill a third of men. Uh, Again, thinking in terms of John's own presentation of the book of Revelation as predictive prophecy, just like Daniel, it's not difficult to see where we fall in the timeline that in the East... There was a rise of Islam. 
and of hundreds of millions, however many soldiers, conquering the landscape in favor of this false religion using violence and conversion by the sword. A third of the men are killed. Again, there's violence, there's apostasy. That fraction again, one-third. These violent warriors unleashed. And isn't it interesting? Chapter 9 and verses 20 and 21. But the rest of mankind, again, we're thinking here of apostasy in the church. So the East, which was famous for its idolatry, its images, its icons, far worse than the Western church. And that's actually what, um, what inspired Muhammad to rise up against it, right? He was so uh, utterly uh, offended by the idolatry that he basically came up with a religion that absolutely forbade all images and all idols. And so the Eastern church kind of, uh, you know, made their bed and slept in it. God raised up Islam to fight against its idolatry. But the rest of mankind, the Western Empire, who were not killed by these plagues, thanks to the, um, the defense that was raised up in Spain to stop the Muslims after they'd conquered uh, Constantinople, so on and so forth, uh, or, or rather, that was before that. But anyway, um, the, the Muslims' uh, advance was, was kept in check. And so the Western Empire, who was not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. All these things describe the Roman Catholic apostasy to a T, especially the idolatry. They should have recognized God raised up the Muslims to destroy the Eastern Empire for their idolatry. Therefore, we should repent. But they didn't repent. In fact, they doubled down, massively uh, murdering the the many proto-Reformation groups, uh, the Waldenses, the Albigenses, slaughtering them, persecuting them, killing John Huss, killing people that are printing the Bible, and refusing to repent and heed that warning of God's judgment of these uh, warriors that were raised up at the Euphrates River in the Middle East. Now, there are subsequent visions that help to confirm this. If you look at the subsequent visions following chapters 8 and 9, what do you find? Chapter 10, you have the angel with the little book, the Bible, the Scripture, is recovered during the time of the Reformation. You have the two witnesses that prophesy for the 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. They, they, they prophesy in sackcloth and ashes, representing the witness of the church. And they're killed, but they're raised up. And they're resurrected. The witness of the church, though it is slaughtered and slain, it is raised up at the time of the Reformation. And we find that a tenth of Babylon falls and there's a major victory against the papacy and against these forces of apostasy through the power of the gospel. That's exactly what the Reformation was. The preaching of the word, bearing witness to the truth, and God brought judgment. We also see in chapters uh, 12 and especially 13 that when Satan failed by way of the dragon persecuting Christians through the Roman Empire, that he then, as I said before, raised up plan B, the beast and the false prophet, 
the temporal and spiritual authority of the papacy. I'm not going to rehash that. We looked at it last time. But chapter 12 and chapter 13 sheds light on the trumpets to say, yes, this is all about apostasy. Yes, this is all about Satan, the dragon, facilitating false doctrine and uh, all kinds of political and spiritual tyranny by way of this Roman beast and this false prophet with horns like a lamb who speaks like a dragon, even the, the papacy itself. So the subsequent visions all point to apostasy. And then we have the seventh trumpet, which is a segue to what is yet to come. In other words, the, the Christianization of the nations according to the gospel, the kingdoms of the earth becoming kingdoms of Christ, of which we find a first fruits of that. At the time of the Reformation, we have Christian gospel nations for the first time in history. Faithful gospel nations covenanted with the Lord, England, Scotland, Ireland, the Netherlands, uh, all of these things coming as a fruit of the Reformation, even our own land greatly influenced by Christianity at its foundation. So the seven trumpets which come to an end when the tenth of Babylon falls at the Reformation. Now the seven bowls. The seven bowls, chapter 16. This is from the Reformation to the fall of Babylon, which is yet to occur. Uh, Rome has declined, but it's still around. Now, uh, if you look at the bowls, these bowls of judgment, the trumpets are trumpets of warning. Be alert, be aware. That guy who's got horns like a lamb, he he speaks like a dragon. Be aware, Be, be careful. Okay, But the bowls are bowls of judgment. So the earthquake at the end of the two witnesses' uh, vision says that a tenth of the city fell, a first fruits of the victory, but the bowls include the fullness of that judgment and the full execution of that victory against the beast and the false prophet. Now, if you look at the bowls, you have a conflict between the kingdoms of Christ. In seed form, many nations have now come to profess that gospel at the time of the Reformation, versus the kingdom of Antichrist and the nations that follow him. During this period, we see that the papacy declines, but that there's a rising global conflict that takes place among the nations of the world. So, the papacy declines, uh, the ten horns of his kingdom and the false prophet with his spiritual authority tend to be more distinguished during this period, They're not just six half a dozen. It's not like the Pope's political influence and his spiritual authority go hand in hand. Uh, There are nuances to that relationship between the Pope and the nations of Western Christendom. But we know for sure during this time that there's a rising global conflict. So let's look at what it says. Let's look at uh, chapter 16. Uh, Well, first, the preceding visions in chapter 15. What is it that precedes this period of the fullness of judgment and victory? Well, it's the Song of Moses, right? The imagery throughout is that of God judging the spiritual Egypt, liberating His people from slavery to wickedness and corruption and perversion and heresy and persecution. Uh, He's liberating them from this spiritual Pharaoh, this spiritual Egypt, and He's bringing judgment upon Egypt. It's, it's God rescuing His people from this tyranny that was raised up during the trumpets of apostasy. So they sing the song of Moses fittingly. Uh, 
And then we go to chapter 16, bowls 1 through 4. It begins in the first bowl of judgment with sores that, grievous sores, that are, are poured forth upon those who worship the beast. So it's clear that these bowls of judgment are against the beast and his followers. Remember the ten kingdoms, the ten horns, the seven heads, the seven hills of Rome, and the false prophet, and all of these things. Remember, this is the Roman Catholic apostasy. And the judgment is upon that apostasy. Sores. We're not, we're not here to begin to look at the history of uh, Western uh, dermatological care or something. We're just generally looking and saying there are sores. There's a judgment upon the worshipers of the beast. It's a time of decline for, for Satan's anti-Christian apostate church. And so what you find then in the, in, in the ensuing bowls, two through four, you have a third, or sorry, you have a judgment on the sea, the rivers, the waters, they're turned to blood. What does that remind us of? The Exodus? Remember Pharaoh commanded that God's people would be persecuted and their sons thrown into the Nile? And God made a point, the first plague on Egypt was this, that uh, you turned the Nile into a sea of blood. You used the Nile to murder little Hebrew babies. And God says, I was paying attention to that and I'm turning the entire Nile into blood because you persecuted my people. You see, here's a judgment. God is saying, I'm going to bring judgment on that beast, on that false prophet, and I'm going to do it as blood vengeance for the people that you slaughtered. And you were drunk with the blood of my witnesses and my martyrs, the martyrs of Jesus. And so He brings judgment on these wicked, murderous persecutors uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, They're scorched by the sun. There's judgment of all kinds. And... They blaspheme rather than repent. That's bowls one through four. Bowl number five, judgment on the beast's throne. Remember, the beast has the ten horns, the ten kingdoms. Represents the ten kingdoms of Rome that eventually came to be papal Christendom, the Western world, if you will. And, of course, we know that uh, that is no longer the case. The Pope does not have political authority today the way he did during the medieval period. Not even close. And if you want to look at when that really came to be, that he lost that civil authority and he lost that throne as the beast, tyrannizing the Western nations, it happened in the 19th century under Napoleon, who basically took the Pope hostage and took him to France and tried to force him to sign something, relinquishing all of his political power. And uh, he was reticent to sign that. But eventually, after the dust settled, the Pope became what he is today, which is a shadow of his former self. He has the religious authority. He's leading millions of people to hell, but he's not micromanaging the political affairs of the Western world anymore. He lost his throne. The beast's throne is judged, and and he's overwhelmed with darkness. It's a dark time for the papacy compared to the height of his power in the medieval period. Then we come to the sixth bowl. Remember, the sixth trumpet dealt with Islam at the Euphrates River and the massive armies that overtook the Eastern Empire. Well, now the sixth bowl takes place at the Euphrates again. 
hearkening to the sixth trumpet, and we find that there's an imagery of the Euphrates being dammed up, being stopped. Okay, the, the verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, historically, originally, Babylon itself, literal Babylon, uh, under Nebuchadnezzar and so on, fell when the Medes and the Persians dammed up the Euphrates River to get their troops across to bring the fall of Babylon. That imagery is being employed here so as to say the fall of Babylon is coming and there are enemies of, of Babylon, spiritual Babylon, that are now being revived and raised up in the world. Uh, and we know from the sixth trumpet that this is Islam. Uh, the kings of the east, Islam is revived. And of course that happened in the 20th century. Thanks to Henry Ford and the gas-powered uh, automobile. Uh, look at where Islam was. Look at these Islamic countries under the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. They were nowhere. They were nothing. Now uh, they can pay the, you know, the best soccer players to come and play for them, or the best golfers. They've got bazillions of dollars. Uh, these nations are now major players in the world. And if you look from the standpoint of Western history, the last hundred years, whether you believe in, in this particular prophetic interpretation or not, Islam has never seen anything like the influence it has today for many, many centuries. It was a nothing, a nobody until the 20th century and even on into our own day. So the kings of the East are raised up. They're certainly enemies. Islam is certainly an enemy to, to a great extent of the beast and the false prophet, and we see them empowered. But notice what else is happening. Satanic globalism. The dragon, representing Satan's pagan agenda, like with Rome in the past. The beast, representing papal Christendom, the Western world. The false prophet, representing the papacy. If you look at the sixth, uh, the sixth bowl, you find verse 13, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. These are the spirits of demons. What are they doing? They're going out and they are uh, performing signs and they go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Armageddon, verse 16. So you have Satan and all of his various uh, advocates in, in among Western Christendom, so to speak, among the pagan nations, among the, the, the papacy, all of these forces, the devil himself gathering the nations of the world in rebellion against Christ around the same time that Islam is revived. Not difficult to see that we're very, very likely in this phase. Now, how long that will last? I'm not speculating. Could last another 200 years. But it would appear that we're in a period where the, the, the papal throne has been judged, uh, Islam has risen up, and the Western world and the world itself is gathered against Christ at Armageddon. And, and I'm going to conclude very quickly, I, I promise. Um, so, what are we to think here? Verse 15, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. So Christ is coming to do battle at Armageddon. And you say, well, that's the second coming. Uh, not so. If you go to chapter 3, chapter 3, Jesus is writing to the church in Sardis. 
Chapter 3, verse 3 of Revelation. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. Is that the second coming? I don't think so. Jump to verse 11. He writes to Philadelphia. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Jesus uses this language, perhaps sometimes of the second coming, but multiple times in Revelation for a historical manifestation of His judgment and power. And He's saying, yes, the nations are gathering together against the Lord and His anointed. Chapter 19 is describing it. They're coming against Him and He will ride forth with His people on the white horses, as it were, with His Word and His Gospel And He will defeat them with the sword that comes out of His mouth. We don't know when. We don't know what it looks like. We know there's a global conflict. And we know that the Gospel will prevail. And we know from chapter 19 that when it does, the beast and the false prophet will be cast, as it were, into the lake of fire, destroyed by the Word of Christ. And Armageddon, what's the significance there? Well, that's where Josiah died because he foolishly took sides in a battle between Egypt and Assyria. Egypt and Assyria were at war, two enemy kingdoms under the wrath of God, and when Egypt came to fight against Assyria, they came through a portion of God's uh, promised land, and Josiah decided to take the dog by the ear and get involved in this conflict, taking sides with Assyria to stop Egypt because they came through his land. Bad idea. Uh, when, when Satan's kingdom, when two aspects of Satan's kingdom are in combat and in conflict, my friends, we are not to join with one side over the other. And the, the lesson of Armageddon is this. Don't join forces with Assyria against Egypt. Don't hop on your horse with Egypt against Assyria but get on your white horse with Jesus Christ and advance the agenda of His Word against all of His enemies. And I submit to you that this very well may be the fact that this battle is at Armageddon to demonstrate that God's people have learned their lesson the second time around. And they ride with Christ. And they don't take uh, nationalists versus globalists and globalists versus nationalists and this group and Putin and and the New World Order and all No, they don't take sides. Whatever may come, I'm not suggesting it's, it's right around the corner. We don't know. But they don't take sides. They ride with Christ victoriously. And Jesus Christ, through His Word, establishes peace and righteousness and removes the satanic deception from the nations, thereby facilitating what we read from Isaiah 2. And we'll close with this. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are on the throne and You are all glorious. Indeed, Your throne is beautiful and majestic and is, uh, were we to see it, would, would blind us. And we would see that around Your throne is a rainbow signifying Your plan of redemption for which You restrain Your anger and Your wrath that would destroy this world in a heartbeat so that there is seed time and harvest and winter and spring and summer and fall so that the years go by and we can say 2024 in the year of our Lord because You are advancing Your kingdom by Your power and for Your own eternal glory. We pray that You would encourage us with the reality of Your victory that even in times of darkness and deception, You are simply putting Your enemies exactly where You want them so that You can vanquish them, so that You can convert many of them, and so that You can establish Christ with all the nations under His feet, that He may shepherd them with a rod of iron. We ask and pray and declare these things in Jesus' name. Amen.